Hi guys and welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm your host Freddie Cocker and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations. In each episode, I check in with a special guest. We have Anata and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. My special guest for this episode is going to be covering a topic so dark and so grim that I'll try and make it through to the end of this pod without losing my faith in humanity completely. Alina Clough is a writer and has a regular column for Evie magazine. She started her writing career writing about conservation issues before pitching articles for Evie so much and so successfully that they offered her a regular column where she's been writing ever since. The article which I came across her through was entitled Dance Mums Are Using Social Media to Digitally Pimp Out Their Daughters, which chronicles a hugely disturbing trend of, as the title says, mothers using social media to digitally pimp out their daughters from babies to preteen dancers and deliberately targeting predators to view their content, which the algorithms then amplify. In this episode, we take a deep, dark dive into this world and how these mothers are getting away with the sexual abuse of their children whilst hiding in completely plain sight. Why Alina became disillusioned with the narrative and messaging a lot of female-targeted media outlets have right now in the mainstream. Dating apps and how employers are now offering free egg freezing for women and the implications of this on fertility and the women who take it up. For Alina's mental health, we discuss her diagnosis of ADHD when she was studying her postgraduate degree, her experience of taking medication for it, and her attitude towards medication, and we finish by talking about how her faith has benefited her mental health in recent months. So this is how my check-in with Alina Clough went. Alina Clough, welcome to the Just Checking Pod. Thank you so much for letting me check in with you. Unfortunately, the way I came across your brilliant work was with a, a very dark and painful topic that we, we will get into in this podcast that made me slightly lose my faith in humanity, if, if this podcast already hasn't with some of the topics that I cover. But before we get into that, how are you? Pretty good. Thanks so much for having me. I'm just wrapping up my week here in Washington, D.C. and psyched for the weekend. Excellent. We've got a lot to talk about and we've got loads of other positive things and, and other things to talk about besides this issue that we're going to discuss as well, Alina. So without further ado, are you ready to start the show? Can't wait. Let's go. Let's start your podcast, Alina, by talking about your writing journey. So tell me how and why you got into it, what inspired you and the journey to where you are today. Yeah, so I've always enjoyed writing, but actually getting my work published is a pretty recent phenomenon for me. It's kind of a really awkward thing when you first start putting your work out there. And I think the permanence of it definitely intimidated me. So last year, I was a journalism fellow for the American Conservation Coalition, so an environmentalist group. 
And it helped me to do writing on topics that were super policy-based and wonky, and at least I thought at the time, inoffensive to just about everyone. From <laughs> there, did though, you I, know? <laughs> little did I know, um, never, ever, ever check the comment sections on your articles. No, no, no. Um, which I finally stopped doing. But from there, I ended up pitching a number of pieces to EV Magazine, where I'm now a regular contributor, and that's not environmentalism-focused. It's just a women's magazine. And I get to write pretty much whatever I want, which is super fun. Before we talk about the EV stuff, when you mentioned there about the trepidation that you had about the permanence of articles being online, you described it as a form of paralysis to me off air. Was that purely mental or did it physically stop you writing as well? I think it was definitely just mental paralysis. I mean, I've written pretty much every day since I was about 10. Most of my writing never gets shared with anybody. My grandpa actually bought me my first journal and he was <laughs> totally convinced that it was the best form of sort of DIY therapy, if you can call it that. And I get the sense he was right. But even in terms of creative writing and whatnot, a lot of my writing will probably never see the light of day outside of Google Drive. But the paralysis is real. I mean, all it takes is a couple of minutes on Twitter to see somebody getting clapped back at for something they said years ago. And I really like new ideas and I like changing my mind when I'm confronted with better arguments or new information. So I've always had this fear that putting my own opinions specifically online and specifically in print or in a publication is like locking them in, in a way mm. that I'm, I don't know if I'll ever be ready to do as long as I'm continuing to engage with new ideas. When it comes to Evie, the first proper article in inverted commas that you pitched yourself seems like a pretty big moment for you. Just take me back to that day and how you felt when you submitted it and how you felt when you got the email back saying that you had succeeded. Yeah, at that point, I'd been pitching to a number of publications. And the process for anybody else who's familiar with it is a massive pain. You kind of just <laughs> have like an Excel document open at all times, trying to remember who you pitched to, what you pitched to them, and how long you should wait until you should just assume that you're getting ghosted. And I think I was really worried that I would just continue throwing articles into just this black hole forever and ever. So when I finally got one accepted from truly just a cold pitch, it was the greatest feeling I legitimately was jumping around my apartment like a little girl. It was great. And it just felt really cool that for the first time, totally organically, somebody actually wanted to hear what I had to say. You then obviously wrote more and more to the point where Evie basically said, do you want to just be a regular columnist or regular contributor, shall we say? So how did that feel? Did you feel like you could call yourself like a professional writer at this point? Did the imposter syndrome go or not? Um, it, it's kind of tough. I definitely would now, I guess, call myself a writer. It's a weird term because I think it implies the sense of authority that in some way I definitely wouldn't claim. I guess I think of it a little like running. If you regularly go for runs, maybe you're not an Olympian, but you're still a runner. There's no speed qualification for calling yourself a runner. I don't necessarily think that there's a notoriety qualification to call yourself a writer. So I think I'm still a writer, even if I'm not a bestseller. I'm putting thoughts into words for other people to read. And I really don't want to give myself a higher bar than that because... Not exactly ever going to be a Hemingway. <laughs> <laughs> yet, mate, yet, yet. We'll see, we'll see. <laughs> I want to talk about a few issues now before we go on to the very dark one, which is coming towards the end of this topic. So the first one is dating and dating apps. Now, I've covered dating a lot on this podcast, so I don't want to go over too much old ground. However, when you've written on this issue in Evie, you spoke about the pros and cons of something called the abundance mindset. So just explain what that is for the listeners, the pros and cons and how it relates to a male versus a female mindset too. Yeah, so the abundance mindset is kind of one of those TikTok type trends where women will tell you, oh, date from a place of abundance. It's this idea that you should be dating from the perspective that you have lots of options. And I think 
some of this is good because if you think that there's only a few good guys left, you're going to desperately cling on to the first one that you see instead of actually looking for someone who's a good match or maybe that you're actually attracted to. So the theory behind it nominally is solid, but unfortunately with social media and dating apps, this mindset can get totally out of control. Dating apps, and this is one of the few things that I can actually say from my background as a software designer, they use a lot of the same psychological design as casino gambling machines. Even, and you might not notice this on a lot of social media apps, but when you go to refresh the page, there's a little bit of a delay. Oftentimes that's not just so that the internet can load. It's because we get a serotonin boost when we see something spinning like that, because Mm. it makes us think that anything could pop up next, which I think dating apps use this to try and convince you that the perfect guy is one swipe away and that you're crazy to compromise on the tiniest of things. And where this comes in with men and women is women are especially hypergamous. And I think this mentality kinds to be really dangerous for them because there's this tendency to just want to upgrade and upgrade and just this guy is perfect except for this one small thing, or I don't like his nose, or I wish he'd change his hair. So if I swipe one more time, that's when the perfect guy with zero flaws is going to come up. And I don't think that that's something that when you're dating just out in the real world in a friend group, you can really be convinced of because people are just more scarce and you can see Mm. them for who they really are. But certainly in this sort of metaverse, if you will, it can become really pervasive and apps have a huge incentive to sell that to you because they're Mm. not actually trying to get you off the apps. Yeah, it's really interesting because I think with men, that principle applies, but in a different way. So I think with men, it applies to sexual variety. So you'll be like, oh, there's a hot girl just to swipe away. Whereas I think with women, it's more like there'll be a guy that's more of a fit for me as a relationship one swipe away. Does that make sense? Yeah, 100%. I think for men, it's also a quantity thing. And um, yeah, but maybe that's the thing it plants again. (laughs) But maybe. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I just, I don't know. What if we could sell you a little bit of hope? And that's kind of what they're doing. Yeah. Exactly. And as well as that, you always get given the advice by mates. I think men and women also get this advice. It's like, don't put all your eggs in one basket. I kind of struggle with that a little bit because I'm like, if I find a girl that I'm talking to that I really enjoy, it's like, great, let me just put my focus on this. And if it doesn't go well, then I'm back to square one. But I think that advice is given from a place of, if it doesn't go well with that girl, you're back to square one. (laughs) That's what they don't want you to have. (laughs) Yeah. Let's talk about something now which you've found frustrating, Alina, which is the types of issues that are being covered in mainstream female-targeted media outlets and how you believe that they don't speak for women like yourself. So just tell the listeners why that is and maybe a mental health aspect on it too. So I used to follow a lot of the sort of mainstream women's publications until I... I saw an article and I was just following their Facebook page or whatever it was about how to cheat on your boyfriend or it was how to hide. Oh, I think I've seen this. Oh, I think I've seen this. I've seen this. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, probably. And I remember going, wait a minute. I came here for skincare recommendations and I want to read advice about people's love lives. (laughs) Not that advice. I don't, I don't want advice on how to be a horrible person. And I can't put my finger on it. Maybe it's just that that kind of content is so controversial that it goes viral. I mean, clearly it is since I'm talking about it, but it seems like this total race to the bottom of just turning young women into total degenerates without morals. And I don't think that that's actually helping anyone. I think at the end of the day, acting virtuously is what does make us happier people. It's kind of like the choose your hard. Being faithful Mm. to your boyfriend is very hard. Going through infidelity is also really hard. Choose your difficult and choose which one you want. And I think a lot of the women's magazines, I don't feel represent the type of difficult that I want to choose. And it's been a little disappointing seeing 
how much they've fallen. Cause it's certainly, I don't even think was that way when I was, you know, 13 and my dad bought me 17 magazine or something like that. I was, you know, how to count calories for the first time or just. I mean, there's a, that's a whole other problem there, but yeah. Whole other problem, <laughs> but it was, you know, comparably fairly innocent content. And I just, I don't know how we got here. Yeah. I mean, that article doesn't really bode well with the whole advice about once a cheat, always a cheat. <laughs> that yeah. Women give to other women when their partners cheat on them. So yeah. Yeah, that's a mess. Yeah, I think um, the, the rise of like call her daddy type. I don't know if you were ever familiar with that podcast. Uh, um, no, thankfully, maybe it's from the sounds of it. <laughs> it is. I think it's still going on. I actually don't know. Basically, two women who they were roommates or something would just talk about the craziest escapades, hooking up, whatever. And they always had this tagline, cheat or be cheated on. And just this. Yeah, horrible. That stinks. Um, Interesting, and and the idea was just okay. Well, one of you is going to cheat, so you might as well beat him to the punch. And my goodness, I cannot think of anything more self defeating. That's than mental illness. That is a dating philosophy. That's, that's mental illness. Yep. Sorry, that is mental illness. One thing that I unfortunately found out through friend of the pod and fellow Evie writer, actually Freya India, is the rise of divorce parties. Now I had no idea what this was, but apparently they are real. And they celebrate divorce through the same lens as kind of like the post-breakup, single independent female type messaging. How and why did those lines become blurred? The idea of a divorce party is just so incredibly sad. My parents' divorce, though I love them both dearly, was something that radically altered my life for 20 years of family court. And sure, there's certainly exceptions for things like adultery and abuse, but no fault divorce, I think, has just turned marriage into this sort of weird eternal option for self-realization. And it's just about what it can do for you rather than a commitment. And I think divorce parties are definitely reflective of that idea that if it's not serving you, let it go. And it's kind of turning it marriage into something to be consumed. I think feminism initially started off trying to lift up women, but we've gotten to the point where we're treating men, and not just any men, but men that we've loved enough to spend our entire lives with as just these disposable nuisances. And I think it's this kind of aggressive individualism runs pretty counter to our nature. And it's really sad. And I don't know, abuse and adultery are wrong, full stop. But at least in the US, and I certainly don't know in England, most divorces are no fault, meaning those things don't apply. And And female initiated by majority of women. Yeah, Yeah, vast majority of divorces. Men tend not to contest them. So they're not usually fought. I don't know if you would really expect them to if someone says they want to leave you. Well, it depends how much cash they've got. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, very true. But I don't know. I mean, I disagree with the crazy radicals that you might find on Twitter some places who say there's no excuse for divorce. There's several really, really good reasons for divorce. Abuse and adultery definitely being among them. But I think couples should have those options. But I think the law is a teacher as to how we should live. And it is a moral authority. And we learn from the laws that we have. And I think what we've been learning since the advent of no-fault divorce is that exiting a marriage can basically be on a whim and there doesn't have to be anything actually deeply wrong with the marriage to leave it. Yeah. I don't know if you ever saw this article, but I think I think Barry Weiss might have shared it. And it was this like really long, it must have been at least 5K words about this woman who wrote about the liberation of divorcing from her husband. No, yeah, divorcing from her husband and leaving her children to find like a younger man or something. The last line was like, I felt the wind on my face or something like that. And I was like, this stinks. Is this this how we're glamorized? Is this where we're going now? Is this the slippery slope? I think the Handmaid's Tale mentality has just gotten into people's brains of just 
you are a slave to your family and the only thing that serving your husband or children could ever be is slavery. And I don't know, describing yourself like a cow who sees grass for the first time is a little odd. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. It's, it sounds like a, a PETA advertisement or something, but Ugh, you chose well, to marry this guy. You chose to have kids with him. Yeah. Take some personal responsibility. Yeah, it's the kids that I feel sorry for in this. But anyway, really? on to, um, I don't even know this is why there's sunnier climbs here, but another issue that you wanted to talk about and I've covered a little bit with different guests and different issues is fertility, Alina. And you wrote an article about the intersection of fertility and employment benefits meeting quite sharply when some employees, and I don't know if this is a UK thing, by the way, I'm just purely talking about US perspective here, but some employees in the US have begun to offer complimentary egg freezing as they're offering to potential staff members. So why has that trend arisen? What is actually egg freezing as well for the listeners who don't know, maybe probably my male listeners? And why was it first used? I think the trend is largely rising with corporations trying to cover it because there's a race to the top for top female talent. Certain affirmative action issues obviously exacerbate this because you just need female employees. You can't just choose male ones. And the main reason women drop out of the workforce is their fertility. Obviously, the fact that we can create life is a huge nuisance for corporations. And if they just solve that pesky issue by convincing us to delay families or just forego them altogether, then they basically end up with double the number of employees by making us act like men. Now, there's some good reasons to freeze your eggs and every woman's situation is radically different. But if you're effectively coerced by an employer holding your career hostage, I don't think that's ideal for anyone. Egg freezing for the uninitiated is a process by which you will be given hormones to get your follicles to release eggs, um, then through a somewhat invasive procedure. Costly as well, by the way. Quite costly. Um, I mean, I guess not if your employer is covering it, I suppose. But you go under and they manually extract eggs and freeze them. This is totally medically necessary for some people. Every woman's situation is totally unique. For instance, if you are starting chemotherapy. I was going to say, cancer was the first main one, isn't it? Yeah, that's how it started, I guess. Yeah. I believe that is probably one of the first use cases it was developed for. Mm. I'm not a medical expert by any means, but that's a normal use case for it. And now we're mm-hmm. kind of taking it a little bit off label uh, mm. by using it for this situation. But but yeah, I think the gamble that a lot of these employers are taking is also that they will probably never have to pay these benefits to women. A lot of them are saying that because you're probably only going to work there for two or three years. You might not even have time to get around to egg freezing. And so it's a pretty low stakes thing for them to put in their benefits package to attract you, even if you ultimately won't end up using it. The unfortunate reality that we both know is that the chances of successful childbirth women is around 50-50, I think, when they hit 13 onwards. However, in the article, you quote a study which showed that 90% of the women surveyed believed IVF and egg freezing would give them a, quote, good chance of conceiving post 30 So when only 10% of women, this is in the US, I think, who freeze their eggs will be able to conceive, A, are women being lied to? And B, is this a ticking time bomb? Yeah, I definitely don't want to feed into a lot of the crazy fear mongering around women's fertility, because I think a lot of it's unnecessary 
and just, you know, once you hit 25, it's all over and just give up and you should get married at 18. No, 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 not at all. I'm not saying that. But yeah. Yeah. The reality, yeah. Yeah, there is a reality. So to be clear, your chances of childbirth ever after 30 aren't 50-50. Half your eggs are gone, which oh, I think Oh, sorry. That's, people, that's what I meant. Sorry. Yeah, a lot of people interpret that, but I mean, you have quite a lot of eggs that you will never use. So okay. it doesn't mean that your odds themselves are 50-50. There's about a one in four chance each month from your 20s into your early 30s. And then by the time you're 40, it's about one in 10 each month, which cool. is, you know, I'm happy, it's to, stand, I'm happy to stand corrected. <laughs> yes. No, I, I'm happy that I'm 26. So, uh, you know, I'm over the hill as far as some people online are concerned. But and if fertility only had to do with our eggs, then we'd say that the most fertile women are newborns. But, you know, there's a lot the more that goes into it. <laughs> than that. Yeah. Won't try and put that in anyone's minds. But your fertility absolutely does start to decline rapidly through your 30s. But what I think is super interesting about that 10% number, so 10% of women freezing their eggs, actually conceiving from them, is it's hiding something that we don't often talk about with this conversation. 10% of women who freeze their eggs will end up conceiving from them, but it's because so many of them don't even end up trying. And why don't they end up trying? Uh... They never met a man to marry. The women freezing their eggs aren't just delaying fertility for their careers. They're also very often delaying marriage itself because women often you know, settle down because we feel as though our biological clocks are ticking. And when you don't have that and you just don't feel as though you have that biological clock anymore because it's been, you've medically gotten around that obstacle, you don't really look for a partner in the same way. So these women are getting to 37, 38, 39 and going, shoot, I would love to try and use these eggs, but I don't want to voluntarily be a single mother. I kind of just assumed I'd be married by now. And I don't know. I, I've seen, I saw one article that was quite viral. I don't remember what it was in, but it was a woman who I think had frozen. She got maybe 10 or 15 eggs, ended up with eight or nine embryos because not every egg turns into an embryo. Mm. And she was doing this all herself. She had initially done some sort of op-ed or she was on the cover for being so proud that she was choosing her career over young motherhood. And only maybe four of the embryos were healthy. None of them implanted She's oh, done. I've heard that. I've seen That's this. It. And it, uh, there was a quote and she like howled with pain. It was something yeah. like that. Oh my it's God. Yeah. I've, I've read tragic. this. Oh and yeah. That haunted me. That article. Really? These fertility clinics are at least the for-profit fertility industry writ large is selling women kind of a lie that everything is going to be perfectly fine. You can have your cake and eat it too. And truly I believe women ha- can have it all, but you can't have it all at once. And mm. I think sometimes when you're looking at people who have incentives to lie to you, like employers and like for-profit fertility industries, it's very easy to buy that lie. But I do think that it's really, really tragic because most of these women just, it's not informed consent whatsoever. I will add as well that, you know, previously women were settling probably for men they didn't want to marry and marrying them anyway. And that's obviously yeah. a bad thing. And now they don't have to also do that true. because yeah, that's obviously a bad thing. And now they don't have to do that. But there are obviously consequences of that further down the line if they choose not to marry yeah. or have kids or find the right partner later and later. So yeah, I'm making sure I don't get cancelled on this part of the conversation <laughs> for sure. No. Right. I mean, more, more spouse choice is fantastic. There's a reason that it, I'm not going to say that all of modernity has completely been a mistake. I could say that, but <laughs> No, it, it's it's great that women are not ending up in horrible, abusive marriages. However, it's a total straw man if we pretend that's the only alternative to what we've got right now. You said to me off air that the happiest demographic in the US are married women with children 
What does that tell me in this enough from a mental health perspective? Yeah, I mean, I was kind of amazed because that data is from a 2020 Atlantic survey, actually. And I think women are often sold this idea that they should live by themselves and for themselves. And ultimately, it's a really unnatural state to be in. One of the most feminine things I think you can do is care for someone else, especially children. And we also have this urge to be loved and to love a husband. I don't think that that is the end-all be-all for all of women's fulfillment. Surely lots of us love our careers. I love my career. And I'm not a psychologist. I won't claim to be. But fighting what's natural, especially in your femininity, I don't think is a recipe for happiness. I think a lot of times the easiest or the simplest solution is often the correct one to go Occam's razor. And, you know, if your mother and grandmother and great-grandmother were really, really happy because they loved their husbands and they loved their children, it's a pretty decent bet to make that maybe with additions in your life, that's also going to make you pretty happy too. We could do a whole other podcast on this, but we need to move on to the very dark and disturbing topic, which I came across you for, Alina, which is the probably... I'm going to say one of the most disturbing phenomena I've ever seen doing this podcast, and I've seen a lot of shit. Yep. <laughs> so uh, a lot of dark shit as well. So the article is called Dance Mums Are Using Social Media to Digitally Pimp Out Their Daughters. Tell me how on earth you came across this, first of all, and the deep, dark rabbit hole you fell into covering it. Yeah, so there's a really great account called Mom Uncharted that I think was just started to raise awareness about not putting compromising content about your children online. Mm -hmm. It was a pretty bare bones. Hey, you never know how their 18 year old self is going to react to having bathtub photos online. And by the way, there's some creeps out there. Maybe have a private profile if your children are on it. It seemed innocent enough. This poor woman has ended up down her own rabbit hole, finding out the, the parents that are willingly, if not purposefully, exploiting their children online through a lot of horrible means. So in the article, I focus primarily on, I guess, what I refer to as dance moms, though, you know, huge caveat, not all dance moms, not even most dance moms. (laughs) Hashtag, Um, hashtag not all dance moms. (laughs) Hashtag not all dance moms, uh, because it certainly isn't. I was a, I danced as a kid. My mom probably would have murdered someone for even thinking of this. But basically what they'll do is they will set up Instagram accounts and post lots and lots and lots of photos of their daughters. And I don't know if you've, you or any of the women in your life have ever danced, but man, do the outfits start to get real skimpy after about age 10. And a lot of these women realize that there's a lot of traffic that goes to these. And so they'll set up Amazon wish lists where the men can buy things for their daughters. And maybe that means that the men get a photo of the daughter in these items. And we're talking high heels and bikinis for 11 year olds. They're also starting to sell VIP photo packages of Things like my my daughter and her friend. So a lot of times it's not even their parents that are doing this. My daughter and her friend licking ice cream or doing things like that. And I think the reason that it's so pernicious is because this isn't overt child pornography. This isn't overt human trafficking. It's things that have this horrible, plausible deniability where they can- Sheen. Yeah, Yeah, it's this sheen of just- oh, I'm just supporting my daughter's dance. What are you, a creep? How could you accuse me of that? But if you scroll to the comments, you quickly realize that these women absolutely know what kinds of creeps are out there and what these creeps are using their pages for. And it's it's really, really disgusting. When you first uncovered this, given the established narrative, as far as I'm aware, that child sexual predators, pedophiles are majority male, vastly majority male. When you discovered these mums doing it, 
not in that sense, but in a different yeah. way of abuse and manipulation and exploitation. How did it make you feel? Were you shocked? I don't think I was shocked because I think this does tend to follow a pretty established pattern of how women tend to have a role in just human trafficking, child pornography in general. I, I mean, there's a reason that women have always had a role in running things like brothels. Um, Epstein's wife. Yeah. And, and I think sort of the Epstein's wife type figure has always been the case. You see this a lot of times when we talk about international human trafficking, there's often an older woman who is actually doing the day-to-day trafficking of the young girls. A lot of times when young women just are pimped out to their mother's boyfriends, it's usually that their mother is getting paid for it, or she has an incentive to be doing that. So I wasn't surprised, but (laughs) I'm not surprised. I'm disappointed that uh, these women are, I think it's really just a sign that it's evolving with the times. I mean, this is something that's existed for thousands of years in all of human history. Men are the ones who probably want to themselves be doing the abusing, which we're kind of also seeing with this. That's who's doing the comments on these types of photos. But no, I mean, definitely, definitely pretty disgusted because I think the other unfortunate aspect of this is any girl who is doing dance, dance is pretty expensive. And so these are not by and large, families that are horribly hurting for money, or this girl probably wouldn't be doing travel, competitive cheer and dance. They're not starving. This is just honestly greed. And it's so much worse because this Mm. isn't, you can't even claim that this is some horrible third world doing it to survive type desperation. It's, It's just gross. Before I ask you about what needs to change in the law to get rid of this, the most sickening example of this abuse that I read was when you document how a mother took her three-year-old daughter on tour, in air quotes, and used Instagram to announce in-person meetups for this toddler's supposed fans, in air quotes. I never like doing this because I think it becomes a bit of a, you know, slippery slope. But if this woman was a father, they would rightly be locked up and probably taken from that child, I would imagine. Oh, 100%. Is there a bias here? I would say that there is. At the same time, I think that there's a sex bias, but there's also kind of a psychological difference with a lot of the moms. I think a lot of women, for better and very much for worse, have a much harder time oftentimes wrapping our head around the minds of men and how just dirty and gross it is. And there's a lot of women who just really, really, really want to be family influencers online. And they truly believe deep down that they're Chip and Joanna Gaines or whatever you name the cute Instagram couple. And I think women often like feeling affection. I've often heard it said that men ultimately want to be respected. Women ultimately want to be adored. By our peers. Yeah. 100%. That's so true. Yeah. And I think when you take this to the extremes, the extreme for men of wanting to be respected rather than adored is that they, you know, in a, in a bad understanding of masculinity would rather abuse someone and get that that respect than be loved by them. Women are the complete opposite. And I think when you see, especially the way that a lot of us will act online, like the bad understanding of femininity is that we don't even care if you respect us. Please just give us likes. Please give us fire emoji reactions to our stories. No, I don't have any opinions. No, I don't respect myself. Just I'm begging you, subscribe to my OnlyFans or whatever it is for the woman. And I think that is absolutely at play when women start having babies. A lot of them, you know, you start to feel... You've got the the mommy tummy and you're not feeling as good about your body and people don't have the same amount of interest in you, even just by virtue of having children. 
regardless of whether or not you're married. And so I think when they realize that they can use their child as a proxy for this sort of affection, it's addictive. Oh, um, that's a dark, dark hole. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't even it. necessarily mean sexually. I mean, just the fact that people are paying attention to you and people love you enough, quote unquote, to be growing an Instagram following or whatever it is that they're doing. It's very easy to use your kids to get the affection that you're no longer feeling. So in this case, I mean, the woman that was advertising this three-year-old, first of all, I'm sorry, neither of my parents would have ever let someone meet me at three if they were that eager to. It's just disgusting to even think about. But I can almost believe that even if they figure out what's going on over time, that at first it kind of just feels like normal affection and it kind of just feels like having normal social media fans because we have this warped sense of what affection should feel like now. Mm. Um, and everyone wants to be an influencer. Yeah. Sort of thing. Um, yeah. There's a, a brilliant professor over at Georgetown, Joshua Mitchell, who talks about the essence of addiction. And he says that addiction is when the supplement becomes the substitute. So something that ultimately should have helped add to it, maybe, okay, you feel a little more loved when you get some likes on Instagram becomes the substitute. And that really is what you're using instead of this applies to pornography. I think it applies as well, specifically with women to our online world. Mm. Obviously me and you are not trained psychologists, Alina, but is one factor here, do you think the breakdown of the established mother, daughter, mother, son, father, son, etc., bond whereby many parents see their children as their best friend and vice versa? rather than as the parent-child relationship. Oh, 100%. And I think a lot of that is things like Instagram, where you kind of just feel like an equal to everyone. Mm. I grew up with my parents going, I'm your parent, I'm not your friend. And when I was five years old, that hurt my feelings because I thought that we could just be best friends. And now I'm very grateful that they never treated me as though we were just besties. I saw a horrible <laughs> post the other day of a three-generation lineup of women saying, three generations of us all on OnlyFans subscribe to us and they put their links together with a grandmother, mother, and daughter. Yeah, just gag worthy. Um, oh, I want to cry. <laughs> yeah, I am grateful that I don't think either of my grandmothers will learn what the word OnlyFans means until God welcomes them back home. And that is perfectly fine by me and then they shouldn't. Mm. But yeah, there's, there's definitely a breakdown where I think women, especially with filters and things, more and more want to just have this eternal youth because we're really uncomfortable aging. And one of the yes. ways to do that is to pretend that you are just besties with your 15 year old daughter. And the problem is it's not natural. You're not supposed to be besties with your 15 year old daughter. She's 15, get your own dang friends. Or if you're a daughter, and escape womanhood or try to. Also very, very common. Mm. How did this story affect your mental health? Because I'm pretty fucked just by listening to it. Not by you, just the story. So I, years ago, not years ago, I guess in the past couple of years, I've done small scale, like micro influencing where just usually getting clothes or gym memberships or things like that from brands. And I definitely realized I was doing a lot of it during COVID where we were all extra online more than usual. <laughs> and I kept realizing how completely hooked I was on just figuring out what the click metrics would be and just mm. going dang it, this post didn't perform as well. Do I just not look as hot in it? Or what's the deal? Or did I post it at the wrong time of day? And I was just obsessing. And 
I think taking a step back and realizing, okay, I never really blew up my account or anything like that. I never did anything that I'm unhappy with, certainly. But I think we can often examine the virtue of an action, a hobby, something like that by looking at its logical extreme. Certainly, logical extremes are oftentimes just that. And there is a healthy margin of error for just being on Instagram and being a normal human being and liking the fact that a lot of your friends liked your post. But I do think it made me re-examine how careful we need to be about getting Mm. hooked on that sort of stimulus. Did it make you lose your faith in humanity a little bit? Even God? I don't know. I could never lose my faith in God, certainly. (laughs) Um, And No, truly. I mean, I think part of what faith in God tells us is that there is sin in this world and this world is not perfect because of it. And God really just looks like a light out of that. He is the perfect example of what all of this disgusting sin your faith is your coping mechanism basically (laughs) yeah i mean it's truth it's the fact that we're saved from this ultimately is the most beautiful thing i can imagine i think it definitely made me a little bit more skeptical of putting my future children online or even seeing my friends do it not even because i think that any of my friends would do anything like this because they certainly wouldn't but just going oh my goodness wow, there are so many creeps, more creeps out there than I even imagined. In my head, I thought they were just sequestered over on the dark web using sketchy browsers to go find this stuff. But oh my goodness, they're on the same platforms I'm on. We've got Um, AI now. That's even scarier. Yep, 100%. And I don't know. I mean, I've especially seen people save my posts. You can see when you pull up your Instagram metrics that people save your posts. That's always kind of freaked me out, but I never really understood I think the types of creeps that existed on social media. And so, yeah, it definitely made my, me lose my faith in just how innocent Instagram has seemed, at least from that angle. I mean, we talk obviously about things like body image issues, et cetera. Mm. Instagram has never been innocent, especially for young girls, but it's a lot worse than I thought. And there's a lot worse people on the platform than I probably understood. And as a final question, what has this writing journey so far taught you about yourself? I think that I really do care a lot about being a woman and everything that that entails. I've seen a lot over the years about what it means to be a man, but I think women oftentimes don't always hear that much about it. And some of this is for good reason. I've heard before that a man can kind of fail to move from boyhood to manhood in that a lot of times we have sort of coming of age rituals and some men they're not brought up properly, or if they never really embrace adulthood can kind of get stuck in boyhood forever. I don't necessarily think that's the case for women in quite the same way. I think that you mature in a much more gradual way that doesn't feel like taking a final leap into adulthood in quite the same way. I mean, sure, there's always been sort of female coming of age rituals, usually just around puberty, but that's kind of something that happens to you, not something that you affect change on the world. And it's not based on peer respect or belonging or a leap into a group that you then find purpose or belonging to. Yeah, exactly. And so for women, it's just this kind of gradual thing that just sort of happens to you or maybe happens around you. Or there's certainly that first day as a teenager where some creep looks at you on the street and you go, wait, he's looking at me. Whoa, that's new. But I think as a result of that, a lot of women, especially now with feminism basically telling us that women don't exist or do exist or they can be anything but they can't be anything i have no comment (laughs) no comment i'm sure i will probably cancel myself here i guess i don't care but i think writing about 
all of these different aspects, good and some very bad, of womanhood and femininity has really convinced me wholeheartedly that it exists and it is very real and it has pros and cons and positives and negatives, but ultimately that it's something that women can and should care about, care deeply about, and uh, be investigating for themselves, for their peers, and just for women as a whole. We've talked all about Alina the writer. I want to dive a bit deeper and talk about your own mental health journey now, Alina. So I ask all my special guests this question on this topic first. Take me back to early life, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences? Who's the Alina we meet here? So I grew up with my parents splitting up pretty early and kind of went back and forth between houses, sometimes as often as every two days, pretty much from the age I was roughly two. And, you know, custody arrangements varied every few years from then till adulthood. And it was definitely tricky, but I think that I ultimately ended up leaning on a lot of people. I certainly leaned on my parents, but I leaned a lot on other people outside of the two of them, like grandparents, teachers. And I think what I ended up doing throughout my childhood is really intentionally looking for other sources of leadership and just really solid adults, specifically other married couples and trying mm. to figure out my, both of my grandparents had fantastic marriages and trying to figure out, okay, I know what not to do from watching my parents, but what is healthy actually look like in relationships and what is a good dynamic look like? Because I'm pretty sure it's not, swapping out your kid between cars in the school parking lot. We discussed fertility societally in the last topic, Alina. We're going to talk about this very briefly here, but when it comes to you personally, you made a big change in the last few months was when you decided to come off birth control. Now, I read a mind-blowing book, which we discussed off air, called This Is Your Brain on Birth Control by Sarah Hill, PhD, which I think every woman and man actually should read just to figure out if you're a woman, whether the pill will work for you, because it obviously works for some women and for a lot of women, it doesn't. So how did coming off the pill affect your mental health? Yeah. So I got to say, I've read a ton of articles about women saying it made them depressed to come off or their depression stopped when they came off or PTSD, things like that. I got to say, I didn't really notice a ton of changes to my mental health. I wasn't on the actual birth control pill itself. I was on an arm implant contraceptive arm. So I don't actually know if that affects it or not, I would probably have to do more research. But I've totally heard about women talk about how completely life-altering it was. For me, the strangest part has been how difficult it's been interacting with doctors. It took me probably six months to get someone to remove it from my arm. Wow. Six months of asking, I was bleeding nonstop. Um, It was horrible. And my doctor had moved states, so he couldn't. And everyone else was scared to take it out. And then the doctor that finally agreed to remove it we ended up getting into basically a shouting match in his office because he kept saying that he needed to place an IUD. And I said, no, you don't understand. I want to get off birth control altogether, or I want to move more towards uh, natural methods. I want to go cold. <laughs> yeah, I, I just want to go cold turkey. And he kept saying, you're being ridiculous, was honestly talking down to me quite a lot. And I got really frustrated. And I think there's this weird sense that the doctor won't ask you are you on birth control? They'll say, which birth control are you on? And I never started birth control for reasons of contraception. I don't need it for reasons of contraception now. And doctors either won't believe you when you say that, or they'll challenge you and they'll go, well, it's it's really helpful for acne. And it's really helpful for having a super predictable cycle. You do want a predictable cycle, don't you? 
And it's been really frustrating because ultimately the main reason I wanted to get off of it was because I felt as though there was something going wrong with my body. Mm. And I just wanted to meet myself for the first time, really. So I don't know. I don't think I haven't really noticed many differences in my mood or anything, but I've, I've certainly you know, I had some run-ins with the healthcare system in general, and it's it's been really quite disappointing just to learn how little doctors will listen to women if it involves doing something that's even slightly out of the ordinary. I was about to say, from the sounds of it, at best, that sounds quite infantilizing, those interactions. And at worst, it sounds like they're working on a presumption that if you did go cold turkey, A, you would just go out and get pregnant at the first man you'd meet, and yeah. B not that necessarily that's a bad thing, but B, that they would view that as a catastrophe, so to speak. Yeah. No, and this was one of the conversations I had with the doctor removing the arm implant. And he goes, well, do you want to be pregnant? Kind of as a threat. And, and I just went, How, where, yeah. where have we got with that? <laughs> yeah, and I went, yeah, I do eventually, actually. And, you know, if it happened tomorrow, it wouldn't be the best thing in the world for my, you know, schedule and everything. And I would also be surprised and confused as to who it was but um (laughs) wouldn't really be sure how that would happen but yeah I do want to be pregnant eventually and I'm sorry there's worse things that can happen than a baby we treat babies as though they are the worst consequence of anything I mean it's as though they're the worst thing that can medically happen to a woman and this is even from health class I mean I remember being fear-mongered too about STDs when I was Mm. in 14 and taking high school health class. But man, the main thing they would always drive home is just how terrible babies were. And I don't know if you've met a baby, they're pretty stinking cute. They've got the little chubby legs and chubby arms and they say weird stuff and they just babble. They're adorable. So I don't know. I mean, certainly I understand that women's opportunities are limited when they get pregnant young. I think that one of the best things that we can do to even get women out of poverty is to make sure that babies don't happen outside of wedlock to the degree possible. But I think we've evolved into this sort of medical understanding of sexuality where just sex is something that everyone has to be doing all of the time, no matter what, and that there should be zero consequences for it, which unfortunately just isn't the way that sex was designed Mm. and also isn't the way that we have to live. I'm sorry, you just simply do not have to be having sex all of the time with everyone you meet. And I think for most women, we absolutely should not be. <laughs> There's not a lot of men doing that either. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's that's more of a skill issue, I'd say, yeah. for the gents. <laughs> what I was going to say is, before that hastily timed joke, is it sounds like the pendulum has almost swung a bit where me and you are kind of of a, of a similar age, Alina, in that in the late 90s, probably sort of early to mid noughties teen pregnancy was a very big thing yeah. a very big thing sex education was very bad and there was a lot of teen mums and you know that was obviously providing a lot of challenges for them and you know a lot of poor mental health because they were perhaps feeling like this decision that they've made is now you know completely gone with them for the rest of their life etc cetera, etc cetera. however what that seems to have been now is that that issue i think has by and large been addressed there's not many teen mums i think by and large in, in the uk essentially but have we gone to the point where now pregnancy itself is becoming feared and women are taking that fear on to an extreme degree? Oh, absolutely. There's been trends on TikTok where people, women will post what they call their quote unquote list. And it's the list of all the th- the reasons that they're too scared to get pregnant. And it will just be 
usually lists of these crazy complications who, yeah, they certainly happen and they're serious medical issues. It is a big medical undertaking for your body. But we've come to, for whatever reason, see pregnancy as kind of a bug rather than a feature of women's bodies, which is so strange. I mean, you were built to do this. It's a normal thing to happen to you. And yes, you can and should take it medically seriously. It's very serious. But we've kind of come to see women's fertility as an issue to be treated. And I think it's really odd, especially because, sure, in the 90s, we had an absolute, (laughs) I think, crisis of sex ed. But rather than actually teaching people about their bodies, we've just slapped them all on pills and implants and inserts. And I think one of the fascinating things I've started doing just basal temperature tracking, and I finally actually learned how a menstrual cycle works for the first time, which is completely... So did did I read in this book, genuinely. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And I mean, sure, maybe they used those words once or twice in health class, but it was by no means the focal point of the way that we talked about women's bodies. And most women can only get pregnant like five or six days a month. That is crazy. That is completely crazy that we are just going on things that are wrecking our bodies, truly, for something that we could probably plan around, especially in a marriage or something where it's slightly lower stakes, whether or not you get pregnant exactly when you want to, you know, I don't think anyone's ever fully ready for a baby. They're always a little bit surprising with every new parent that I've talked to. I'm not a parent, but that's the gist that I get is that babies usually shake up your life. But I I do find it completely crazy that our answer to a lack of sexual education wasn't more sexual education. It was fear-mongering, truly, and fear-mongering to a crazy degree that usually really isn't supported Mm. by the literature. And it was just extreme amounts of pharmaceuticals, which Mm. I, I think we've probably understand why that was pushed, at least in the US, where there's a huge profit incentive to just get people on these subscription products basically forever. Let's move on to the main part of your mental health journey, which is your diagnosis of ADHD in graduate school, Alina. So just tell me about when the symptoms started, how they impacted your daily life, and how, like a lot of women I speak to who've got this condition, you were able to mask it with some incredibly organized coping mechanisms. (laughs) Yeah. So I guess in retrospect, I don't know when the symptoms started because it's hard at some points to figure out where ADHD starts and ends and where your personality just begins. (laughs) Um, But I mean, gosh, my high school band teacher used to always call me space case because I was always spacing out, but I was never hyper. I was, you know, generally pleasure to have in class on all my report cards, got straight A's. It was perfectly fine. So I certainly was never evaluated for anything like ADHD. I honestly would have very much surprised my parents back then. So it wasn't until my first year of grad school, which was pretty academically rigorous, where COVID starts, everyone's online, and I went from setting the curve on statistics classes to almost flunking my second semester of statistics and sitting down with the professor. And I remember saying something to him like, look, I don't care if I get an A, I just need to pass. And that's all I'm trying to do. And he went, it is not guaranteed that you pass. And I need you to understand that. And it was the weirdest come to Jesus moment because I had never before ever worried about failing a class. But it was so difficult because my class for the first time ever just existed in this tiny little bubble of my computer screen. And I would get up and walk around or completely forget that it was playing or I'd start playing with sewing or something, just getting completely distracted or just zoning out. 
and then realizing that the screen had gone black and that, oh, the class had actually ended several minutes ago and I was still just zoning out. And it was really, really difficult. So I ended up getting evaluated for ADHD. I don't remember why that occurred to me. I think I had kind of just gone to the counselor asking generically. And she asked, have you ever been evaluated for ADHD? And I went, oh, I don't have ADHD. And proceeded to list out a lot of different reasons why I didn't have ADHD, including things like, well, I used to lose my socks all the time. So I just bought 100 pairs of the same socks. So now I don't have to worry about matching them. And I used to get really distracted anytime I'd make coffee. So I put everything for making coffee in the exact same area. And I used to get distracted when I would go to make cereal in the morning between getting the milk and the cereal. So now I just store my cereal in the fridge. Genius. <laughs> so then I grab them at once. And sometimes I even put the bowl and the spoon in there too, if I'm really worried that I'll be stressed the next morning. And anything that I'll lose, I put on my keychain. So that's where my nail clippers are. And this woman just kind of stops writing at this point. And she goes, I need you to understand that these are coping mechanisms and that these are symptoms of ADHD. <laughs> this is not evidence that you don't have ADHD. <laughs> And I remember being kind of frustrated because I felt like here I am, 22, 23, I don't remember. I've made it pretty dang far. And if you're going to get diagnosed with ADHD, that's supposed to happen when you're five years old and can't sit still in kindergarten. I am an adult. I am a professional. I am good at what I do. And I'm smart. And I, what the heck? Don't sit here and tell me I have ADHD as I'm probably talking her ear off like I'm doing to you right now. No, um, not at all, mate. You mask it very well again. <laughs> And I remember not being insulted, but just being frustrated with myself and kind of going, dang it, I thought I had this under control. And I've always known that I interrupt people a lot or that my mind goes a mile a minute. But on at least my mom's side of the family, I was proudly the only person who didn't have ADHD because all of those crazy people are just completely out of pocket. And then I realized that <laughs> I guess we all do, which is totally fine, <laughs> but so, you know, I feel like just another member of the family now. But I don't know. I did get on medication briefly after that. And I, I do think it was necessary to get through certainly work. I do software for a living. So a lot of it is kind of sitting down and pretty high focus flow state type work. That might help and, you, if you if you can hyper focus now. Yeah, which, you know, it, it can be helpful in certain ways. I think the problem with the hyper focus of the ADHD is a lot of times you hyper focus on things that you are not supposed to be doing. Ah, um, <laughs> yeah, that's not helpful. <laughs> <laughs> which is really tough. So when you can get into hyper focus designing software, man, you are unstoppable. But when you're supposed to be designing software and you are, I don't know, looking out up how to propagate plants and just propagating a couple hundred of them and buying seeds online and going, cool, okay, I'm going to research the best seeds that I can possibly grow indoors. And then you realize that you've just missed a meeting that you were supposed to be on. It can really get you off the rails. So I was on medication for a couple of years, which I definitely think helped a ton. I don't think that I could have honestly done grad school without it. I was in a program that, I don't know, other people said they didn't find it as challenging at points. I think they're liars. I thought it was pretty difficult. <laughs> we're, all, we're all putting on masks at some point, mate. Yeah, we're all wearing masks. So I don't think I would have finished grad school without it, but then kind of getting into my professional life after graduating, I had never taken it on weekends. I had never taken it on days where I didn't have class or didn't have something super important, never really wanted to worry about getting addicted to it. And then there ended up being a shortage, at least in the US, of Adderall, which is what I'd been on. I think largely driven, and I've read that it's been largely driven by these sort of online 
internet pharmacies where you can click three questions, tell them you have ADHD and they just go, sure, and prescribe you some. There's a few other things you can get quickly diagnosed for like that, but I won't go into that. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> many things like that through those online pharmacies. So Ozempic, the weight loss thing is being- That is massive like in that. the US, isn't it? Massive. Yes. Bloody oh my hell. gosh, it's taking off by storm. Problem is, similar to Adderall being diluted, the market being diluted by that, Ozempic is actually supposed to be used for people with diabetes. So diabetics are now facing shortages of their own medications. But that's a story for another time. I mean, um, your country's really not learning from the Oxycontin opioid crisis, is it? <laughs> uh, we, we repackaged it now. Um, right, okay. It's, it's under new branding, but right. it's being remarketed. So I don't know. I did get off medication once the shortage started, partly out of necessity, partly just out of going, do I really need this anymore? And... I don't know. I think there's been pros and cons. There's totally been big meetings or big commitments that I've just completely zoned out and blanked on. But overall, I would kind of rather have myself back. And mm. Adderall can make you super anxious and kind of feel very high strong. And I didn't like that feeling ever. And I don't know. It's, it's nice to meet me again. Now you're off medication. What tools and coping mechanisms do you use in your life now? Are they less extreme than they were when you were listing them all out with that counsellor? Uh, no, I still buy all my socks in bulk. Um, <laughs> so I don't know. I think I've kind of just realized that there isn't, no one is watching how I live. And you know what? If I want to store my cereal wherever I store my cereal, who cares at the end of the day? One thing I gave up on is a while ago is folding clothes. Other than certain things that'll get super, super wrinkled, I realized that I would just never put my laundry away or I could never find it because I just hated folding it after I washed it and washing it never bothered me. So I've kind of gotten a system of those little cloth bucket type things. And one is for long sleeve shirts and one is for short sleeve shirts. And I just keep everything in buckets because it's totally fine to pull them in and out and they're never really wrinkled. And I bought a steamer so that if something's wrinkled, I just quickly steam it before I put it on. That's the system that works for me. I don't think that necessarily works for everybody. I do my makeup pretty much the exact same way every day, which I think a lot of women do, honestly. And all of the makeup is in the exact same container. And if I travel, I basically just take that container with me. So I think I think everyone needs those sort of quirky ways of working. But I don't know. Everything in my house has a place. The keys are just always going to go in the little key thing. Um, yeah, I've got that as well. It's great. Yeah, it's fantastic. And some of these things aren't even ADHD related, probably. They're, nah, probably they're just, just organized. Yeah. It's just so, I don't know. I think... Designing your life and setting yourself up for success is something that we should all put a little bit of thought into. I probably put a little bit more thought than some people into it just out of necessity. But ultimately, other than, you know, your future spouse and kids, nobody else has to really live with you. So as long as your quirks are okay for people, you know, having a coffee station usually doesn't bother people. It's nothing that crazily extreme, I don't think. But other than buying 10 phone chargers because I just lose them and I just stick them in the outlet and we just leave them there. But <laughs> We're going to finish your mental health journey by talking about faith and you've touched on it a little bit already, Alina. So it's been reignited in the last few months. First of all, why was the fire a bit damp previously? Yeah, so I think a lot of Christians, especially when you go away to college, you get out of the routine of going to church with your family and it's the first time in your life that you probably have to super proactively seek out going to church. And it's not just going to church on your own with the people that you've known since you're four years old. 
it's going to church with people that you've never met who maybe aren't the same age or the community is very different. And if you go to a couple and you're not really clicking, you don't really know how to feel about it. It's like shopping, um, isn't it? It's, it's a lot like shopping. We actually use the term church shopping. So Right, there we go. Uh, it's, it's literally church shopping. So I don't know. I think in college, I definitely fell away from it. And I was at a religious college, not like a, not where we had mandatory chapel hours or anything, but it was kind of weird always being around a church because you'd kind of walk to class and pass the church and go, Hey God, what's up? I'm going to math now. (laughs) And it felt as though that was sufficient. And then I actually, I, in the middle of college dropped out for about a year, moved to Germany for this fellowship thing. And I was doing refugee work over there. And I remember I was doing some interfaith thing with some of the Syrian refugees. And so we had Muslims, we had myself, we had a Jewish family that was hosting it. And I remember just going, this is the closest that I felt to other human beings in years was just through faith in God. And maybe we shouldn't in this interfaith environment, get into the details of what that faith in God looks like. Yes. Let's keep it base level, but just kind of realizing that a lot of the things that I just thought were my own values really were Christian values at the end of the day. These weren't things that I magically invented. They weren't things that my parents just sort of pushed on me when I would be questioned about why I believed what I believed about just human life and the human right to dignity. Sure, I could come up with vaguely American ideals, but ultimately what was underneath those was my faith in God and Christian values. And I think that reignited in me this idea of, okay, if this is real, then it's really real and I'm not taking it seriously enough. C.S. Lewis, who I'm a huge fan of, once said, either this is everything or it's nothing, but I must find out which. And I'm totally misquoting him here, but I, I had a moment basically like that where I went, Either I can have a deep relationship with the literal creator of the universe, or this is all the biggest joke and nothing is real and values are fake and morals don't exist, but it's one or the other. And I got a lot deeper into my faith and prayer and uh, my church community, certainly in grad school. And so probably for the last three or four years, I've been much more heavily leaning into my faith and it has been absolutely life-changing, not just as kind of this fluffy coping mechanism or anything. I truly believe that this is just, there's a value in what is true. And I do think that the Christian faith is true. We've seen quite a steady decline of faith across the West in youth populations, especially white people, definitely less so black people, I would say. But as such, young people are consciously or unconsciously replacing that previous structure with other things. Some things work, some things might not. Is it working for you? I don't think it is. I remember talking to a girlfriend years ago who had kind of recently left her faith and she was talking about going to Soul Cycle on the weekends, which is like a spinning class, but they It's almost a cult. Of, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a cult. It really and it but in a truly religious sense. And I remember her describing it to me and she goes, "Well, we do a spinning class, but they you know, help you think about how you should treat people and your morals and your values and who you want to be and like connecting with the broader universe. And I went, oh, that kind of sounds like church. And she goes, well, church is just trying to use you for money. And I went, that's a for-profit business that you're referring to. So interesting. <laughs> like, how much Really does didn't connect the dots there. Yeah, <laughs> just going, you know, my church will never even bother me if I don't tithe. I mean, I didn't give to church for years. 
now I do that I have a full-time job at everything. I probably should have before as well, but where I'm going is free (laughs) and where you're going, you are the product (laughs) that's being sold basically. And I don't know, I think certainly in America, there's this religious reckoning around politics and just, you see a lot of similar themes of just cleanliness and sin and guilt and atoning Mm -hmm. for your racial guilt and atoning for your environmental guilt. And there's a reason we call them, we call them clean energy. We don't call it, you know, renewables as much. We say clean energy because I think deep within us, there is this sense of understanding that what's dirty has to be cleaned and we do have guilt. And if we are unwilling to admit that that's because of sin and because of just human nature and the state that men and women are in, in our world, we're going to kind of awkwardly search out other things to attach it onto that are maybe sometimes they're related proxies. Racism is a sin. It's not wrong to feel as though when you are racist inside that that feels wrong. It should feel wrong. It is wrong. However, saying that the only sin that you have as a white person is your racism or your homophobia or whatever, it's not actually scratching the itch. It's kind of scratching around it. And I think that people are so desperate for community organizations and intergenerational community and service opportunities and ways to serve your community, especially super hyper locally and ways to learn about younger people. I mean, so many of us in our 20s and 30s never interact with children because just in your friend groups, you're not around kids. It's crazy to me that all of these things are aspects that are pretty quickly solved by a church. And we're trying to reinvent the wheel and go, no, 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 it must be something else. If we just have another type of soul cycle class. And I think that's kind of what happens when any time that you divorce from the natural order of things, we see this with fertility where we go, no, 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 all it takes is better egg freezing or all it takes is more egg freezing. And I don't think it's any different in our church communities. I think that there is a natural part of the human being that needs to be in a faith community because that is how God designed us. And yeah, you might be able to kind of tide yourself over with these other supplements for a little while, but I don't think ultimately that it's going to scratch the correct itch in the correct way. I think there's a reason between the relationships between uh, religiosity and happiness. I don't know. I, I truly just think that, I'm not saying you can't be happy without religion, but I don't think that people seeking to get the same thing out of politics or out of for-profit bicycling exercise classes are ever really going to get the same thing. Yeah, it's a loss of community, isn't it, more generally? And I think obviously a faith community is a massive part of a community. So I think community as a concept is probably what we've lost across the West in quite a big way. And then you look at things like the housing crisis where people can't put down roots and stuff like that. So just generally, I think people are are struggling to find community. I think the source of maybe that loss of faith was, I guess, the prominent maybe evangelical right in the late 90s, sort of when we were growing up, Alina, the Westboro Baptist Church at its most extreme. Do you think that kind of made a lot of young people perhaps be turned off by religion and therefore put the baby out with the bathwater, in your opinion? I definitely think that for individual people, certain examples of that have maybe been the straw that broke the camel's back. But I think ultimately it's a much deeper and broader sense of just individuality at all costs Mm. that, yeah, sure, you have bad actors. But I mean, I don't know, in my faith, if I see somebody claiming to be Christian and doing something horrible, 
it doesn't really phase me and it, it kind of shouldn't. Sure. It's the same as the fact that people can be in a political party and somebody else in the same political party says something horrendous and it doesn't really change the way that you feel about your political values. How much more so should you have that connection to just the eternal? But I think ultimately there's been a, a trend in recent decades of just speaking your truth and it's all about what I hate you that phrase, by the and... way. There is no your, it's just the... <laughs> Exactly. But I mean, we're told that it's your truth. And if there's the truth, then that means that that truth exists somewhere outside of you. And if it exists outside of you, it can exist in a church. If there's only your truth, then that can't exist in a church. And those ideas are kind of intention. But the more that we have as a society moved from finding the truth to finding your truth and just that we each get to create it for our very own selves. And maybe my truth is that cheating on my husband was totally correct because I just felt like it. Or maybe my truth is that if my young daughter is being pimped out on an Instagram account and she doesn't know about it, then it's kind of fine. And that's just my truth. But I ultimately think either truth exists or it doesn't. And if truth exists, then you can have religion. If truth doesn't exist, and if we are just slowly chipping away at the fact that any anything could ever uh, be proven wrong, right or wrong, the truth exists and we can know it, then it ultimately leads you to something like faith. Yeah, I, I find it funny that people laughed at the alternative facts line, which yeah. the Trump, I can't remember her name now, but the yeah. Trump previous advisor, I can't remember her name. I've got a face in my head, but I can't remember. Yeah, she yeah. said alternative facts and everyone laughed. And then now we've got to this weird mental health version where everyone says your truth. Now this rubbish, your story, cool, fine, absolutely fine. It's not truth. That really is interesting. I never had connected those two. Yeah, we have so many issues with alternative facts, but you know, you can just have a completely different idea of you cheating on your husband. Let's reflect on your mental health journey, Alina. So A, what has this mental health journey taught you about yourself? And B, if you could go back and talk to the Alina who was diving down a very dark rabbit hole on some sort of sexually abusive mums pimping out their daughters digitally, the Alina who was wondering whether to take ADHD medication in order to pass her graduate school, or maybe the Alina who faith had maybe not lapsed, but maybe had not been reignited yet. What would you say to her knowing what you do now? I think foremost, this journey has taught me a lot about humility. I think I've always been super type A and I've liked having control over everything. So the idea that even something like ADHD, I couldn't just control it out of my life was extremely frustrating. So I think ultimately the mental health journey has been an exercise in humility and an exercise in just honestly asking people around me because there were several people who just weren't that surprised, which was kind of funny to hear for the first time. It's kind of like when you break up with someone terrible and all your friends go, ugh, I hated him. And Thank like, God you did that. <laughs> yeah, and you're going, where was this energy months ago? Like, come on. That's so, ma- male and female dynamics as well, going deeper. Well, there you go. That's another podcast. 100%. Yeah, well, yeah. next time. Um, <laughs> always always happy for a part two, Alina. Always happy. <laughs> but yeah, I think what I probably would have said to my former self is just, it's okay you don't have everything under control and that's fine and you can never. I think that even as a Christian, even believing and knowing that God is in control, there's still this vice grip that you want to have on everything and Mm. just go, oh, I can micromanage it into existence. And I think God probably finds that completely hilarious because he's just watching us fumble. I often think of God a little bit when 
a little bit in the way that parents will watch their toddler trying to do something and you're just going, I'm not going to tell him this is completely wrong and he has the shoes on the wrong feet, but okay, go for it. He's got to find out himself. Got to find out himself. That's at least how I kind of picture it working with us is we're just fumbling around down here and he's going, well, he could ask me, but he's not going to. So I guess I'll let him figure it out himself. And certainly with my ADHD, I think that was very much the case of, okay, you think you've got it. But yeah. And then as far as diving down the sexual abuse rabbit hole, I think probably the most important thing has just been trying to hold intention the fact that a lot of these moms are justifying this to themselves and how easy it probably was for them to fall into this in the first place. I think a lot of times when we talk about sexual abusers and rapists and child predators and all of the horrible people of the world, it's a lot easier to kind of draw this line in between us and them and go, throw them into the wood chipper. They're horrible people and there's no redeeming qualities whatsoever. I think it's much more difficult to recognize that, okay, if I'm not careful, I could also do something evil. And each one of us is absolutely capable of evil. And we are absolutely capable of deluding ourselves with the wrong set of alternative facts into doing something disgusting, either because we say that it's good for our child's dance career or that it's really not all that bad. And I think that even though I started this going, how could anyone be so cruel? Trying to uh, sort of keep more to the idea of everyone is capable of this type of cruelty at the end of the day has been a lot more sobering. We've come to our final topic of conversation, Alina, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests, if we have time. It is a general natter and quickfire chat about our mental health. So firstly, how is your mental health? My mental health is very good at the moment. Excellent. What age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health and you realized that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind? Probably 10. I had a conversation with my grandpa who had kind of said, hey, by the way, sometimes you're guys are going to be feeling down. That's okay. And that's normal. And it's not something that you immediately need to fix. You can sit with it and it's okay. And that was when he started my cousin and I on our journals and was just kind of like, pour it all out. Nothing that you write is wrong and it's okay. And I think actually just having an open conversation about it was so helpful because he took the stigma out of it. And also at the same time, didn't give us the whole, just cheer up. Everything's fine. You've answered my next question, which is about the first mental health conversation. So what triggers do you find in life that affect your mental health? So it could be things people say to you, a sound, a sensation, being in a particular social environment, or have you not figured all of them out yet? Uh, I think a lot of them honestly stem from my own lifestyle. When I'm not eating well or when I'm lapsing on exercise for a long period of time, sleep deprivation, absolutely. I think just kind of those, I hate the term self-care, but... uh, keeping your stuff in order, those will 100% trigger it. But also I I don't really do well being completely overwhelmed, which is hilarious because of how much I do that to myself. So I think just crazy scheduling and just the normal Mm. healthy eating and exercise. So then conversely, what other tools do you use to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have worked? Maybe which ones you've tried but haven't? I think journaling is very underrated. I did do therapy for gosh, probably 15 or 20 years as my parents were divorcing, I was very fortunate to have access to pretty much weekly cognitive behavioral therapy. And I think at a certain point, you tend to just 
start thinking that way yourself mm -hmm. and it kind of just comes out as you're journaling. And so being intentional about that has been very helpful. I also think prayer is a very similar thing to cognitive behavioral therapy. The functions are quite similar. A couple of the things that I probably haven't found as helpful is like the overt self-care type stuff, the yoga and the bath bombs and the facials and everything. I mean, they're nice, but I don't know. They kind of feel like, I don't know, putting lipstick on a pig if I'm allowed <laughs> to get hillbilly with it. Like, it just doesn't do much. It's kind of aesthetic self-care in a way that isn't actually helping you. What is the best book, or as I call it, mental health Bible you've read for your mental health? Now, it can be mental health or self-help related. It doesn't exclusively have to be. And if you can't think of a book, any piece of popular culture. Oh, gosh, I'm really trying to think on this one um, because I, I don't want to take the easy way out of just saying the Bible. <laughs> that's what i thought you were gonna say so i know i know no there's certainly other ones gosh i'm totally blanking right now i'm so sorry that's all right my next question is if there was a mantra in life that summed up your mental health what would it be and why and you can quote a bible quote if you want to i won't i don't know it's probably not as snippy of a mantra as i'd prefer it to be but just there's nothing wrong with the ups and downs downs happen too and i think too much of especially American culture is very focused on just let's be all happy all the time. And that's just not the way it works. And there's nothing wrong with being sad. Sometimes it's not, it's not a sign of failure or anything. What do you love about yourself? I think I am pretty good at loving other people. And I think that I actually deeply care about other people and I'm interested in them. And I think I go out of my way to care about other people. And I like the fact that I keep seeing that in myself. And as a final question, this is a very broad one. What more do you think we have to do to ensure people from all backgrounds, all walks of life, feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health, if most importantly, they want to do it? I think just the not immediately judging people. I think a lot of times the reason that we judge other people, the reason that we victim blame is because we want to believe that if we were in the same situation, we'd be handling it better. It's the same reason that when you're watching people running from a burning building on the news, you sit there and eat your popcorn and go, oh, I would actually be scaling that wall and then I'd grab that woman and then I would completely handle this situation far better. It's the same reason we get things like rape victim blaming, where people go, well, why didn't you just X, Y, Z? And I think that we run into that a lot, especially with things like mental health, where the building isn't physically burning and maybe certainly in some cases, but it's not that someone is actually being attacked. And I think just taking a beat and going, I don't have to be defensive because you are sharing something difficult that's happened to you. I think a, a little bit of self-reflection goes a very long way. Alina Clough, it's been an absolutely fantastic episode. Thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast and talking to me. Thank you so much for having me, Freddie. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In pod. A big thank you to Alina for being my special guest on this episode and for letting me check in with her. I will put some links to where you can read all of Alina's articles we discussed, if you're brave enough, as well as how to follow her on social media in the show notes as always. I'll sign us off by saying if you like what you've heard, please give it a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, write us a review and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. 
If you like what we're doing here at Ben and want to support us further, you can do so by going to our Patreon. That's www.patreon.com slash ventshelpuk. Or you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe or buy a vent t-shirt or buy a ticket to the Just Checking In podcast live show on Friday, September 29th at Eton Manor Rugby Club in Northeast London. All of those links on our link tree. That's www.linktr.ee slash venthelpuk. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember guys, it is always okay to vent. Vent.